0: Proverbs chapter 1, we'll look at verses 8 through 19 this morning. All of us in some way are affected by our environment. Uh, I learned this the hard way when I, growing up in eastern North Carolina all my life, having uh, a southern accent, I ended up after high school moving uh, to Uh, upstate New York where I attended a small Bible school there. And I remember like when I would introduce myself to my roommates, who most were from New Jersey, New York, some from New Hampshire, the first time they heard me speak, that was like an anomaly to them. It was the weirdest thing. They assumed. They said, so what was it like growing up on a farm? Like genuinely asking me that. And I don't even think my southern accent is that strong, but to them, it was really strong. And so they would begin to ask me, okay, well, tell me about yourself. And then, well, I'd say, well, my name is Ben. And they'd say, what, Dan? No, Ben. You Ben where? Like, no, Ben. Well, spell it. B-E-N. Oh, Ben. I'm like, no, Ben. No, it's Ben. And so, like, every time I would go somewhere, and I have to introduce myself, we went through this think- Like, oh, Dan. No, it's not Dan. Ben, you've been where? No, it's Ben. B-E-N. Oh, Ben. And it was like over and over. So when I would just go places after a couple of weeks of doing this, every single person, I met what's your name? I'm like, Ben. Like I just gave in, right? And then I would come back down here and I'd say, hey, man, what's your name? I'm like, Ben. They're like, what? What is that? You know? Oh, Ben. Oh, Ben. Okay, B-E-N. Yeah, got it. And so what I began to realize is that I'm impacted by my environment. And every one of us are impacted. Whether you believe it or not, you're impacted by your environment. If you're around someone who's upbeat, the chances are you're going to be pretty upbeat. If you're around someone who uh, is really negative, the chances are you're going to become really negative. If you're around other people who talk and see the good in everybody, the chances are you're going to become more optimistic And and if chances are, if you're around someone who's maturing, you're going to mature. If you're around someone who's immature, chances are you're not going to mature. And so what we see over and over and over again, even in Scripture, we see that um, who we spend time with in our environment greatly impacts us. So the question is, how do we then, knowing that, navigate our friendships? How do we navigate our relationship. Because certainly there's no such thing as a perfect friend, right? Every one of us has issues that we bring to the table. And if we're being faithful to the gospel, clearly we're going to hang around people that don't know Christ. Clearly we're going to hang around people that are not as mature. And so we have to navigate these, these relationships well. And so how do we do that? Well, fortunately. We have the Word of God to help us. That's what we're going to see in Proverbs chapter 1 this morning, is how do we navigate relationships well? How do we surround ourselves with wise people? So what we saw last week, if you missed last week, I encourage you to go to our website, liveintegrity.org. Listen to the last message because it really sets the tone for uh, the rest of the series. But this is what we saw. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. Solomon was the wisest and most prosperous king in Israel's history. Uh, Solomon uh, poetically writes this book to display the character and the wisdom of God. And what we said as he begins in chapter 1 verses 1 through 7, Solomon lays out really the foundation of how you can have wisdom. And we saw it in verse 7 where he says, to have wisdom you really have to humble yourself before the Lord. Without without, um, humbling humbling yourself before the Lord, you're not going to have wisdom. And so what he does, he he gives you this sort of overview of the book. This is my goal for the book. I want to lay out the wisdom of God. I want you, in order to have the wisdom of God, to humble yourself before the Lord, walk in humility, receive God's truth. And then from verse 7 all the way through, chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through the rest of chapter 1, and then really through the rest of the book, he's applying that same idea. This is how you humble yourself before the Lord and receive God's truth in marriage. This is how you do it with parenting. This is how you do it with friendships. This is how you do it with money. This is how you do it with the way you communicate to other people. This is how you do it in the way that you demonstrate living your life. And so, what we begin to see now from, again, verse seven, humbling yourself before the Lord, this is how you begin to receive wisdom. He goes right into relationships. The kind of people that we choose to spend our time with. That's the very first thing he talks about from verse 7, humbling yourself before the Lord. And so let me show you what he does next. Look at verse 8. He says, Proverbs 1 verse 8, he says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, and they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And all God's parents said, amen, right? This is a verse that you want to tell your children when they don't listen to you. Let me tell you, listen to your father's instruction. Let them be a mother's instruction your teaching. Let them be a graceful garland around your head, right? Throughout the Proverbs, this is what you see. You'll see this language about a father or a mother's instruction. As a matter of fact, the way that uh, Solomon describes wisdom, he describes wisdom as a woman, as a mother, right? That's a good thing, right, ladies? He describes you as being wiser than men, okay? And it's in there, in the Bible, this is what it says, right? And so he says, okay, wisdom is like a mother and a father. And he's really saying, poetically, God's, this is God's parental advice for his children, This is God teaching his children how to live. This is God's basic practical things to grow in wisdom, kind of 101 type stuff. This is how he communicates. And what you'll see um, is as a parent, for those of you who are parents, those of you who are going to be parents, you're always giving commands. I don't know if you know this or not. You're always giving commands. Like when they're a baby, okay, you want to teach them, don't scream in restaurants, right? Don't do it. Stop screaming. And then when they start to crawl, don't touch the electric socket. Don't touch it. When they start to walk, don't walk or run out in the street. Then when they start to communicate, don't you, I want you to say yes, dad. I want you to say yes, mom. I want you to say yes, sir. I want you to say yes, ma'am. When they began to demonstrate their physical attributes, you say, don't hit your brother. Don't hit your sister. Finish eating your food. Don't say that word, right? Don't use that tone later on. Finish your homework. Later on, it's here's how you parallel park. Later on, it's make sure you don't look at that website. Stay off the weird part of YouTube, right? Right? And you began to demonstrate different elements of wisdom. Here's how you find a job. Here's how you move out of your parents' house. So you just it began to get into different aspects. And so as the child grows up, you began to bestow different levels of wisdom. And Proverbs, in some way, is sort of laid out this way. As Proverbs begin, it sort of has different sections. And he opens up one section by saying, okay, I want you to listen to your father, your mother's instruction. This is God telling us, children, I want you to start listening to this level. So this right here in chapter one is really the 101 sub. This is the beginning of, he said, this is sort of like, don't put your finger in the electric socket. This is the obvious things that he's trying to teach us before we can move on to other ways of wisdom, And what's interesting about this is how he sees sort of the beginning of of wisdom is, okay, we humble ourselves from the Lord, and then the very next thing he's going to go into is the kind of people that we surround ourselves with, the kind of relationships that we need to learn how to navigate well. So it's interesting to me. Humble yourself before the Lord, and here's the next thing I want to tell you. Here's the kind of people that you should spend your time with. Here's the kind of people that you should glean wisdom from. Look at verse 10. He says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Sheol, like hell. Let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall find, fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, he says, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed Blood. Now, here Solomon writes a description of a selfish person to avoid. He's not necessarily saying, okay, this is, a, this is something explicitly said about a wicked person. Rather, what he's doing is he's showing us a, a portrait of someone who will bring you down if you spend time with them. Some scholars actually believe that Solomon was speaking about the challenges of a young Israelite who's constantly being oppressed and unable to make money on on their own because they were oppressed by pagans. And so some are saying that um, perhaps that he joins the oppressors so that he doesn't become oppressed and Solomon's warning them against that. We don't know exactly why Solomon wrote it this way, but, but the big idea, the truth remains, he's saying, don't be enticed by selfish people because they're going to bring you down. And the question is, how does this relate? Because we read this description of this person, we say, okay, the one who waits for blood, the one who sheds blood, the one who ambushes innocent people without reason. We say, okay, none of us want to hang out with someone like that. Okay, Ben, I get it. You don't want me to hang out with someone who could kill me. I appreciate that. How wise, right? But again, we have to remember the genre that this is written. It's written As poetry, he's he's giving us a description of a self-centered person. As we read it, the description is really the opposite of someone who lives a gospel-centered life. This is a person that he describes as someone who takes rather than someone who gives. Because the gospel-centered life is one that's really about Christ and what Christ has done. So throughout the New Testament, we see a life centered around the gospel is really one that begins with sacrifice because that's what Christ did for us, right? Jesus Christ saw us as one not to take from, but one to give to. He gave to us life. He saw us as dead in our sins and he died for us so that we could be rescued from our sins and we could be set free from our sins and have an abundant life on, here on earth and have eternal life in heaven. And so Christ, when he came, he sacrificed for us so that we could have life. And then what we do when we trust in that sacrifice and repent of our sins and surrender our life to him, then we live our lives sacrificially out of gratitude for all that Christ has done. So now all all of our relationships don't look like I'm going to take from you. All of our relationships that we build is I want to give to you. I want to give to you to display the gospel. I want to give to you so that you would see the hope that I too have in Christ. And so what Solomon does is describe a person. We can see this now on this side of the cross. He describes a person in Proverbs chapter 1 that's actually the opposite of living a gospel-centered life. And so what I want to do so that we can compare and contrast... I want, I want us to look at Romans chapter 12. So if you have your, hold your Bible in uh, one place in Proverbs chapter 1, uh, then flip over to Romans chapter 12. If you have an app, you don't even have to worry about it, right? But Proverbs chapter 12, uh, Romans chapter 12 rather, Paul is communicating an idea of of a sacrificial life. He's saying, saying, this is how you have a gospel centered life. And what you're going to find is, is really interesting because he talks about a lifestyle of worship. A lifestyle, what does it mean? Okay, now that we know that Christ has died, how do we then respond to what he's done for us? Well, we live a lifestyle of worship. Worship is not going to be described necessarily with how just we relate to God. Absolutely, there's an aspect of that. It's when we come together and we worship together and we sing songs together, we take communion, we give together, we fellowship together. But part of worship is also how we treat other people. And I don't think we think about that when we think of worship. We think of it as like this, this separate thing. Like we're coming together. We're going to pray quietly by ourselves. We're going to sing quietly by ourselves. And we're going to give by ourselves. And it's sort of this individualistic thing. That's how we see worship. Worship is also how you deal with other people, it's how you treat them. How you speak, how you treat your spouse is worship how you treat your children, how you treat your neighbor, how you treat your family member, how you treat your co-workers, all of that is worship. And this is what Paul does in Romans chapter 12. So I'm going to read it. Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, because of the gospel, this is what I'm appealing to you for. He says, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual What? Worship, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't act like the world, what he's saying. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of the Lord is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Two things I want you to see. Part of worship is renewing our life, the way that we live, but also our mind, we need a new heart. We need a new mind. We need our minds transformed because at birth, our minds are debased by sin. And when we have a new heart, we change the way we live our lives, but our minds begin to change. We begin to form and develop the mind of Christ. We begin to want to think like how, how God thinks. And so he says, this is the way that he wants us to live. So these two verses are really about how we act and think before God. But then he goes on to describe a life of worship and sacrificial living. Notice how he does it. Verse 3, 4. It starts with the word for. So he's continuing this idea of worship before God, renewed life, renewed mind. For by the grace he's been given to me to say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. So again, he's talking about a humble posture before God. And then he goes on, verse 4. What does verse 4 start with? The word for. He's continuing the same thought. For as in one body, we have many members. And members do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one body. Body in Christ and individual individually members of one another. So, so he's taking the idea of worship and saying, okay, it's all before God, and then he starts talking about how it's done among one another. He says, verse six, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy and portion to our faith, if service in our our serving, the teaching uh, the one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does act of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, here's what I don't want us to miss about what I just read in verses 4 through 8. Paul doesn't just highlight worship as solely before God, it's before others. And it's actually played out among believers. Each believer is called to display, according to what he says in verses four through eight, how God has gifted them, and all of this is again is so that they can selfishly and sacrificially display God's grace. Take that idea again and continue in verse nine. He says, "Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good." Again, all this is worship. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. How much of this is dealing with how we treat other people? Most of it, right? So, yeah, you have this humble posture in verses 1 through 2 and how we are before God. We want to live as a living sacrifice. In verse 3, we see, okay, he's not going to think of himself more highly than he should. He thinks of himself humbly. And then the rest of it, four all the way through the rest, really, of chapter 12, is how we relate to other people. It's how we live our life as a living sacrifice among other people. And that's, how the, that's what a gospel-centered life looks like. That's how gospel community looks like. He says that their love would be genuine. Their love would be genuine, verse 9. Meaning we don't show act of kind, acts of kindness in order to get something out of another person. We show acts of kindness and we show real and genuine love and grace without expecting anything in return. He talks about to abhor what is evil. It means we fight sin together. We don't like to see sin destroy our, the friends that we have around us. He says brotherly affection. That means we treat each other like family. We honor each other, verse 10. We're zealous for Christ and we serve the Lord together, verse 11. We're patient with each other when, when life can be messy through tribulation, verse 12. We contribute to those of us who are in need, in verse 13. Do you see, friends, the beauty of this community. And sadly, when we read it, we don't think this is even possible to have friendships like this. We say, man, that's impossible. I've never seen a community like this. I've actually seen a community like this happen here at Integrity Church. I've seen people patient through tribulation with one another. I've seen people hate the sin in other people's lives and love them enough to talk about it and display it and even confront in it and build up encouragement in it. I I've seen people being treated like family among the body of Christ. I've seen that. It doesn't happen perfectly. It doesn't happen always. But I've seen that happen. Why I haven't seen that happen? Because that is what happens when the Holy Spirit changes a person's life. When the Holy Spirit changes a person's life, they begin to live their lives sacrificially. They begin to live selfless, sacrificial lives, caring for those around them. And so the gospel-centered life is one that finds relationships, listen, with the sole intention to maximize the gospel in another person's life. This is life, that one that looks intentionally for new ways to display the gospel with those they encounter. And that's the whole reason why relationships are built. Relationships are built in the gospel-centered life. Relationships are built around the gospel And so we take this description. We see this description of Paul. He says, okay, this is what it means to to worship God. This is what it means to be humble before God. This is what it means to live sacrificially among other believers. This is what it means to have friendships. Now take that and compare it to the person that Solomon describes. Let's read it. uh, uh, Solomon, Proverbs chapter one, verse 11. He says, if they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Sheol. Let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil." And they make haste to shed blood. So a few things that Solomon points out here. This person that he describes, we look at it and we say, okay, this person's evil. I know we should avoid an evil person. Most of us don't think of us in this way. But really what he's describing, again, is a person that builds relationships not to give, but to take. This person builds relationships only to gain something for themselves. And what does he say? You Look at even how he describes him in verse 17. For the vein is a, ned, a, a, net, a, a net spread in, in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. How does he describe it? It's like trapping an animal. This is a person who just finds who just traps people to take from them. And he says, but but what does he say in in verse uh, 18 at the very end? He says, they set an ambush for their own lives. And what he means by this is someone who consistently does that, their reputation destroys themselves. Look at verse 19. He says, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Even though someone lives that way and consistently takes, people eventually pick up on it. It's the reputation that ambushes him. It destroys him. So yes, this person builds a relationship to take rather than to give. But that lifestyle, he says, doesn't deliver. It only leads to destruction. And for this reason, Solomon has two simple warnings He says, my son, verse 10, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And then in verse 15, he says, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. And it may seem that Solomon is saying, okay, I want you to only hang out with perfect people. That's not what he's saying. What he's really saying is he's asking the question is of who are you influenced by? How are you allowing your environment to affect you? Who are you mimicking? That's what he's asking. My father, um, about 10 or 12 years ago, he had his first uh, hip replacement surgery. And I remember, like, for years, he would walk with a limp, and, like, he would not go to the doctor. We'd be like, Dad, you have to go. And eventually, over time, he would, his limp got continually worse until when they finally did do the hip replacement surgery and they cut him up like his his hip actually crumbled like in the, in the, like in in surgery right and I remember like for like a like a solid year like he was limping everywhere he went and my little brother um, is fourteen years younger than me he was probably uh, fifteen or so then or twelve or something like that. And my little brother wants to do everything that my dad does. Like, if my dad wears a hat, my brother wears that kind of hat. My my dad has cowboy boots. My brother wears cowboy boots. You know, everything that my dad does, my little brother does. And I'll never forget. Like, my brother was in in great shape. He's an athlete. When he was 12 years old, my dad went through that season where he limped. Guess what my brother would, how he would walk. Everywhere my little brother went, he was limping. I'm like, bro, are you all right? He's like, yeah like, you seem like you're limping. He's like, oh, am I? Oh, oh, oh. And he would walk normal. Why was he limping? Because he wanted to mimic the person that he looked up to the most. And every one of us do that in some way. Why do we mimic people? You ever been around someone, you start to talk like them, or maybe you laugh like them, maybe you do some gestures like them, right? Well, you do that because you like that person or... You want that person to like you. And that's why we mimic people. And so Solomon's description, he's really describing the way that the world works. This is the way that the world works. Don't try to get them to like you by doing what they do. You're not going to make an impact that way. But this is the way of the world. Most of us don't think we're this bad, this description. Okay, I don't ambush people. I don't wait for blood. But this is what he's describing. If we're honest, all of us have this element in us. All of us try to build relationships for personal gain. All of us have a tendency to build relationships solely upon what we can get out of people. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's validation. Maybe it's justification. Whatever it is, that's what we do. But he's saying that's the way of the world. Don't be like the world. This is a simple message that Solomon's saying. Don't do what the world does in terms of how the world navigates relationships. You can be a better believer. That's what he's saying. Now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying... Christians, we can't be friends with non-believers. We can't be friends with people that aren't like us. We should be a separatist community and we should have no contact with the outside world like the people from the village or something like that. Spoiler alert, right? He's not saying that we shouldn't be friends with non-believers, but what he is saying is that we shouldn't gain our influence by the way the world works, specifically in how we treat others. When it comes to how we treat others, we should look primarily at the sacrifice of Christ. We should look at the gospel. And Solomon gives us insight on how to navigate relationships that encourage us to have godly wisdom. And so we have to be wise with how we define our relationships with other people, knowing that we're called to have relationships that are difficult with non believers or maybe people who aren't mature. And so what I have to do in my own life, I have to think about relationships really in in three different categories. First of all, every believer, if you want to grow in wisdom, you have to have mentors. You have to have people that can show you wisdom and walk you through wisdom. You have to have peers, people that you do life with. And you also have to have people that you want to reach out to. And so it's important that you see these categories so we can clearly define how to move forward. And we can clearly understand who we're gaining wisdom from. Mentors are people that we see as mature believers that we can learn from. We look to them, for the, to them to teach us and to model for us what wisdom looks like and applying truth. These are people that are helping us to grow. And we see these relationships as, okay, this is who I'm growing from. And then peers. Peers are people that we see as friends, that we want to hang out with. These are people that we do life with. We share experiences with. We share joy with. We share sorrows together. We're vulnerable with these people. We see these relationships. Okay, these aren't just people I'm growing from. These are people I'm actually growing with. And then we have people that we're reaching out to. These are people that we're trying to disciple. Most likely they don't know Christ, so we're trying to share the gospel with them. Or maybe they just need maturity. And you're trying to be their mentor. And so we, we see these relationships not as growing from or growing with, but we're helping them grow. And so as men- mentors were growing with, peers We're growing, uh, mentors were growing from, peers were growing with, outreach were helping grow. And obviously mentors and peers, some of these things can overlap, but it's important that we really think through the differences and the major distinction who we're really try- is really who we're reaching out to. Because if you're living in community, you need to make sure that the people that you're living in community with, that you're growing from and you're growing with, that they're safe people. You need to make sure that you can trust them with things that you tell them. You need to make sure that you can trust their judgment and discernment, that they can tell you the truth, that they can rightly love you based on what scripture says about what love is. You make sure you can trust them around your spouse and your children. You need to make sure you can trust them enough to be in community with them. And I find that a lot of younger people with, or couples struggle to understand how to navigate friends well, and they don't know how to look, for, look out for people who aren't necessarily good for them as far as gleaning in wisdom. But we have to remember that we're greatly affected by our environment, and if we don't find wise people to surround ourselves with, we most likely won't grow in wisdom. And so I have really two questions for you this morning. First of all, first question I have is, who do you allow to influence you when it comes to wisdom? Do you allow people in your life to give you truth? Are you living in gospel community with other believers where love is genuine, where sin is fought, And there's a family affection that you have for one another. Because that's the relationship where you can grow in wisdom. And the other question I have for you this morning is how are you influencing other people? Do you model genuine sacrifice in your relationships? Or are you just looking for relationships based on how you can get something out of it rather than furthering the gospel? And these two important; these two questions are critical. Who you allow yourself to? Who who do you allow to influence you? And how are you influencing others? These questions are critical because church, it's our prayer as elders, as pastors, as church, that we would be believers who grow in discernment when it comes to how to build and navigate relationships with others, and that we would grow in the ability to have genuine love. Because here's the thing, gospel community is the most attractive thing about our church and it will be the most attractive thing about any church. And I know a lot of churches, including ourselves, sometimes we're tempted to put so much emphasis on the Sunday morning gathering or the, the website or the way that the church is branded or the way the music sounds or the way the preaching is or the programs that we have. Let me tell you something. Like, some people love those things, and some people, okay, we're going to flock to the church. And they, they do. Like, they, they work in the sense of bridging gaps between people and Christ absolutely But the most important thing about the church, this is why the church was able to survive for 2,000 years, has been gospel community. People seeing a difference in your life and people seeing the difference in how you live your life among other believers. And so it's important that you begin to learn what that looks like now. Because when the world sees the opposite from the church, When the world looks at the church and says, man, the church just wants to take from me. The church just wants my money. The church just wants me to volunteer. They just want my time. They don't want to pour into me. And they look at the relationship like Solomon describes a person who just lives and builds relationships just to take. The world is turned off from the gospel. And so may that never be us, Integrity Church. May we strive to make, okay, we're going to make Christ glorified in proclaiming the gospel. And we want that to also trickle down and impact the way that we live our community because that, my friends, is the greatest apologetic that we'll see in Greenville and throughout the world. So that's my prayer for us, Integrity Church. God help us. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for the generosity.